Hello and welcome to another extra special, extra wonderful, super spectacular Final Fantasy X episode of Normandy FM. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Eric Van Allen, joined by Kenneth Shepard. Ken, how you doing this week? Uh, I'm good. I'm vibing. It's uh, rainy here in bumfuck nowhere, but uh, it, hopefully that does not interfere with my recording. It's rainy. It's wet. You're underwater. Would you say you'd like to be sung to right now? Would that be appealing? Would you, would I mean, you like to vibe out underneath the water? Based on what Final Fantasy X has told me, that is the proper thing to do. <laughs> if you're a monster that destroys entire civilizations. Which, Ken, you are. You know, yes. let's, let's be I, I, I'm, I am like paramount to the downfall of civilization. <laughs> also bringing about the downfall of civilization, Ash Parrish, how are you doing this week? I, I'm glad to have been bestowed with such an honor to bring down civilization. <laughs> like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was that powerful. Shit. Yeah, that's what we do here on this podcast. Yeah. The fans have been asking for it, and we're finally delivering. <laughs> it's the end of the it all. The end of the world? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just kill the metaverse before it has the chance to kill us all. I mean, we got to strike first. I was about to say, like, after that presentation today, for, for the folks at home, we are recording this the day that uh, Facebook presented their meta whatever thing hell and uh after that i definitely wanted to uh unleash sin upon us <laughs> make us all uh regret our ways uh but we're actually doing a lot of questioning of sin and of yevin this week so who knows maybe maybe it will save us all uh, is it isn't the thing with sin is that he's like unleashed upon uh, humanity because of his excesses like as a punishment, like to yeah, for like, like rebranding, being... you know, to the meta seems like a very thing that we need to be punished for. Yeah, this is like, what okay. brings sin back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is we're like years from now we'll have someone like Waka saying you know, we can't use the forbidden media. It's always <laughs> <laughs> the forbidden media. Uh, before we get going here, Ash, you've guested several times on our show at this point. You're, you are an official friend of the podcast, but for, for those at home who might not know your past with Final Fantasy and, and specifically Final Fantasy X, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? What kind of got you into this game and, and why you want to chat about it? So Final Fantasy X um, is one of my favorite Final Fantasies. Um, if I remember correctly, it was out in 2001. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, because we just had the 20th anniversary of it. Um, yeah, so I, by this point, I was like 14 years old. I played 7, 8, and 9, and I got to 10, and this was the first play, um, first Final Fantasy on the PS2, and I just remember my entire mind being like completely removed from my skull and like stomped on the floor <laughs> because I had never seen a video game so goddamn pretty. And I, I, as I'm thinking about it, you know, in, in the pre preparation for this show... Those cutscenes really hold up. Like maybe not necessarily um, like the game itself, like those graphics, but like the cutscenes are still really good. And like, not only do they look good, they're like really powerful. Like Yuna doing her sending, you know, that first mm -hmm. time seeing that, like that's some powerful shit that still resonates, you know, twenty years later. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, it's one of my favorites. Um, yeah, not as good as twelve. Oh, the, the fiery thing. hot takes. <laughs> yeah, like, it, it's one of the Final Fantasies that I remember, like, being very completionist with. Like, I got all mm. the Albed spheres. I got, like, all of the summons. So, like, the mm -hmm. Mega Sisters and Yojimbo and Anima and doing the extra work it takes to get those and that, that kind of stuff. Like, this was one of, like, I'm 
I just spent my entire like life, you know, as a 14 year old in this game. Yeah. And it's also responsible for pretty sure for my sexual awakening, which we'll get to at the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. For, for those of you listening at home, uh, this is the Makalania episode. The one thing we did not anticipate in our planning, or maybe only Ken did, uh, was that we visit Makalania twice in the course of the main story. And, uh, Many of you at home who have played this game before will remember one particular cutscene that happens in Makalania in that second time as being like one of the cutscenes of this game. I mean, you, you type Final Fantasy X into Google Images and this that scene comes up like first row. Uh, so with that in mind, when we pitched this out to people, we did say that like this was the Makalania episode. I even went into this thinking that that scene took place here and not later on. So in order to have that discussion on this podcast with our wonderful guests, we are going to have a section at the end dubbed the spoiler zone, where if you are playing along and you want to not, you know, play ahead or you're still catching up or anything like that, uh, you can cut out right at the spoiler zone. We'll label it clearly and all that, and it'll be at the end of the episode. Uh, otherwise, uh, that will be where we talk about that specific part, uh, just because it is an incredible scene, and I think very much merits us talking about multiple times on this podcast, because it's great. So uh, we will get to that when we get to that. But to start off, we do have one other tradition here that I have not heard your answer to yet ash uh how do you pronounce the name of the protagonist of final fantasy 10 fuck um shit i think we we, don't we have an official way to say this like haven't they said it in like um um the fighting games yeah no assist here no assist here (laughs) i need i need honest answer not not informed okay 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 if it makes you feel better we have had right and wrong answers on the show with guests my entire Do not life. Frame it right and wrong. <laughs> and that's the truth, though. My entire life, I called him Titus. Mm. I'm pretty sure, though, that the correct pronunciation is Titus. But I yeah. think Titus is more correct because he is associated <laughs> with mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. you see this boy, mm-hmm. he's all like he's he comes literally out of the water. He's like dripping. the first time you see him, he is in water. And like, mm-hmm. what do you associate water? The tide. So I feel like. Canonically, it should be Titus, though I know it's supposed to be Titus. Phonetically, even, it makes more sense as Titus because you don't say Teed Pods like it's Tide (laughs) Pods. But uh, yeah, we've been over this. I, at the beginning of this podcast, ceded to Ken for for his own well-being and for the well-being of all our listeners that I will be referring to him as Titus, even though he is... Titus to me. Although now at this point, I've been accidentally just calling him Titus without even realizing it. So there's Ken no might word have... in the English language that's T I. That sounds like T. It's all Thai. Well, the, oh, well, that, and that was I, the thing I've though. Like, I, the, the thing that like I, I mean beyond the fact that that's like what they call what is called in like Dissidia and other you know spinoffs and such because like he's never actually said by name in this game or even mm-hmm. tend to. Um, is that like usually the Japanese I is pronounced that way? Like, e, yeah, you're like right. Ryuji. Mm-hmm. Like, you're right. Yeah. So, mm. I, mm. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm still Team Titus. But for, oh, for the sake of this, 
for the sake of this podcast, I refer to him as Titus. You know, I, keep, I I don't have to respect that rule. So to maintain, <laughs> no, you are you are free to call him. I've I have actually been waiting because we frame the question like that every time, and I'm waiting for someone to say Yuna because. <laughs> That's oh the, god! I, I hope somebody says that before we get to the end of this. The the accurate answer of who is the protagonist of Final Fantasy X, uh, or Orin, I'll take that answer too because I'm slowly, I'm still convinced that there is a good reading of this game that Orin has been trapped in a time loop and has been trying to uh, fix the time loop, and this is secretly just Death Loop or Twelve Minutes or whatever other time loop game you want to insert in here. No, you no, you're right. Yuna absolutely is the protagonist. I don't yeah. I I've never really seen a reading where it's not. Like this is we're in Final Fantasy twelve territory here where like, you know, you play as Vaughn, but Ash is very clearly mm-hmm. the main character. And like mm-hmm. I think that's where this starts. And like it's always been Yuna's story. Like, yes, it starts with this is my story. I'm like, eh, eh. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. And like I, I think this episode, like this section is really where Yuna gets to take control of the story. Like for most mm-hmm. of it, Tidus is kind of in the backseat for large portions of this section of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we were out of the Thunder Plains uh, and fresh off of the revelation that Yuna uh, is going to marry Seymour, is going to accept his proposal. Um, and, and as we talked about at the end of last episode, Oren kind of stops us and uh has a little heart to heart with us where uh he kind of breaks down like what like who yuna is you know he says she's naive serious to a fault doesn't ask for help easy to read hard to guard um and he he like leaves titus with a little you know word of advice just to like stand by her always uh so we do we we start to get this picture of who yuna is as a character from the beginning of the section that she is somebody who wants to believe the best in the world and also wants to shoulder all of the world's problems by mm-hmm. herself and not put any of that burden on, on somebody else. So she does need people like Kimari around who are going to like, just take care of things mm-hmm. and, and not wait to be asked. Um, I'm, I'm slowly coming around on Kimari. I don't know. There are some moments in this section where I was like, Kimari, I mean, I'm not saying he was a bad character before, but now he's finally getting some spotlight in ways that I had forgotten about in the years prior. And I'm like, yeah, Kamari, good character. He's he's the he's the team's uh, Kina Quina. Is it Kina? I think it's Kina from Final Fantasy Nine. Like, it takes oh, you several yeah. playthroughs to understand. Like, oh, this is why this character's here, and not only because they're both blue mages, but because like, mm-hmm. oh, I finally understand the function of this character. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm always gonna be down for Kimari Ronzo because he he looks like what he does, and yeah, <laughs> he's kind of sexy. <laughs> I mean, you know, who wouldn't? Yeah, yeah. You know, win in Spira. That's that's what we see around here. Um, but yeah, so we we gather around and um, Titus has a really weird line. I remember this specifically where he's like, "I'm I'm glad she's not marrying for love or something." <laughs> like this this whole section is like Titus not being willing to just admit through the narration that he's, he's like, no, Yuna, no, don't go <laughs> like, don't mm-hmm. go marry someone else. But, um, it, it feels like they're just dancing around the whole feelings part in a way that is odd. Um, 
and that even now playing back i'm like just just we know it's it's romance like you can just move forward with it it's okay but they keep doing this weird stuff where you can like make a pass on lulu and stuff like that (laughs) so uh (laughs) um but we head into the woods and outside of talking to the chocobo knights and catching up with the chocobo knights who are just kind of still hanging out um and and shalinda who also like congratulates us uh this whole forest area is not really there's not much to talk about here frankly uh i like the scene with bartello showing up uh so donna's been separated from bartello he can't find her he's freaking out and Oren kind of like calms him down is like hey you know you panicking doesn't help anything you know just be a guardian you're going to find her. And then he's, he's even like, do you want some help? And, and Bartello's like, no, I got this and like takes off. But, uh, we also get kind of some foreshadowing with Riku acting weird about mm. the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if but, she knows why. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it almost seems like at the end of that scene, like she's going to like sneak over and tell him what's going on. Yep. And then they're, they're kind of like, Hey Riku, what are you doing? And she's like, Oh, never, never mind. Just wanted to say like, I, I hope you're doing good. Um, but yeah, this, the forest is honestly the, the area that finally feels like we're in a dungeon up to this yeah, point. Yeah, very much so. Like it's very twisty. Yeah. They've masked the dungeons very well up to this point where, you know, they'll be like, oh, you're in an area, but you're going to be stopping along the way to talk to characters and there's different stuff going on. Like the me and high road is a good example of them turning a dungeon into something that feels like thematically fitting that you're on this road trip, you're stopping and talking mm. to people along the way. And here Makalania just feels very classic final fantasy dungeon. Like, Oh, it's woods with winding paths and random encounters and stuff. And there's not really any major story scenes going on until we get to the end with the sphere morph. So do, do we, do we, is this where we, um, do the butterflies or is that on yeah 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 i remind me what the butterflies do i just i remember catching them uh, do you need them to like progress or something or is no. that just like a no thing they're like do? they're like supply drops in like different segments like you have to like collect them all and you'll get like you know these these special items and mm. they're not like they're you know they're nice to have but they're not like anything super uh notable um it definitely feels like the point in the game where like the environment doesn't have the same like forward momentum of everything mm-hmm. else like it is like you know this disorienting twisty turny forest that is kind of unlike anything we've seen so far um but uh like it's like it's something that still sticks out to me it like showing how even if the like graphically the game has not aged all that well like the art direction of it is still stellar because this place is beautiful like it's like mm-hmm. not even just in the uh like the cinematic that we're gonna talk about later but like just being there like still it's just this gorgeous it's like this perpetual night place yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, it, it, Michael Forest is like one of the only places that I can still like vividly recall mm-hmm. the music like mm-hmm. I, I can I, I remember the mouth harp song like I think that I mm-hmm. forget where that is yeah exactly, but Forest like that song is like burned in my brain in a way that like no other song is except with the exception of like two Xanarkin and Suteki Dane which we'll talk about yeah. later 
Yeah, like like those ones, and then like Besaid Island is the other one that I mm, always think mm-hmm. of with the the frog that they hit with a hammer <laughs> to get that weird croak noise out. My um, favorite um, arrangement of Besaid uh, Village is actually the piano arrangement in the piano mm. collections. Mm. It sounds oh, yeah. nothing like it, but it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, do they still make those? Does Square still make the piano collection for Final Fantasy games? I haven't heard thirteen. Yeah, the only one I've got, like, I have the 10 one on disc, and that's the only, that was, like, something I got, like, well over a decade ago, like, when I was having to, like, look on eBay for shit as, like, an early teen that mm-hmm. needed my, like, my mom to, like, buy it with her credit card, mm-hmm. and I've had that for a long time. Um, a lot of beautiful arrangements on there as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this is some of, like, the Final Fantasy team, especially Nobuo uh, Uematsu's, like, best work. Like straight Absolutely. up, this is Final Fantasy X. I think there are reasons that people have for rating it higher or, or lower on their favorite lists, and you know everybody's got different enjoyment of of the Final Fantasy series. But one thing that always comes back to ten is that the soundtrack is just mm-hmm. incredible, like in all timer. All timer. Uh, oh, there is nothing, nothing else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they knew that audio, I think, was, was going to be a big thing going into this because this was also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the first Final Fantasy with fully voiced stuff mm-hmm. in it. Yes. Um, yeah. So, like, they, they knew that audio was going to be a big step for this game. Not to say that they were like, oh, we're going to actually put the work in <laughs> we've got voiceovers, but um, it feels like there was a lot of special attention paid to just not even just the music and the voiceovers, but even just the sounds in this game are so memorable. Like the, the noises going through the menus and the sphere grid and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It just has like an oral texture that you, it's hard to forget. And I feel like every time I even hear just like, that's such a beautiful way to put it. Like oral texture, like (laughs) the sphere grid. And my, my, my mind was like, bleep, bleep. Yep. You know, I just I just hear it like, OK, yep, that that's exactly what that is. And I couldn't do that for like literally any other game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even for the games that I like more, like eight mm-hmm. and and 15, I, I can't think of it like that. But you said what you said about 10. And I'm like, yep, that's that's perfect. Yep, that's mm-hmm. absolutely correct. It's a game where, yeah, the sphere grid. I, if I say like, oh, I just unlocked a note on the sphere grid, you can like hear that shimmering, glimmering noise that it makes when it unlocks and stuff like that. And it's just such. It's such a small thing, but I think makes a game stick out in ways that uh, can can make it feel completely unique and and separate from all the other games that are out there. Um, just having that memorable audio quality to it. So yeah, I oh one of the little things in Final Fantasy X. <laughs> yeah. uh, but for big things, we have a big old spheromorph that we got to take on because Orin decides to take us on a detour where. Uh, there's like a lake area that has a bunch of water that makes spheres. Uh, and also fiends are attracted to these places. And Orin kind of knowingly walks us into a fight with a monster mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to get this uh, sphere that Jekt had recorded uh, and left there prior, uh, 10 years prior. Um, this, this fight. So, so Ken was once again, watching me play through this on discord uh, the other night. And he gave me the recommendation of going in here and uh, using a specific party. And even then, I think this fight was not great and probably one of my least favorite bosses so far, just because it's a puzzle boss. Uh, It's one where 
it will constantly the sphere morph will change into different elemental affinities and so you'll That's have to thought. yep yeah you have to read like what ability it's going to use and then counter with the opposite element but at this point you only really have one character that can do elemental damage and so it felt like i got into this rhythm of hit it with a character to make that character get attacked and see what magic it was then use lulu to hit them with the opposite magic and then Yuna was ostensibly there to cast null spells, but I forgot how null spells work, so I didn't use them. <laughs> uh, and instead just used her to cure the whole time. And it was yeah, just... She's the heal bot. Yeah, yeah. Null, you, you should null have spells access to Riku's, um, like, her ultimate by this point, right? Yeah, but ultimates, overdrives early on are such a precious resource because you start out with, like, the worst way to gain overdrive, which is you which have is to, like, damage. take damage. Yeah. 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 Um, I think on most of my characters now, I have ones that suit them better. Like I know Titus already has the one where you ha- you do damage to get mm-hmm. overdrive. Yep. Um, I think Oren's got that already too. I think Lulu has the spell casting one, but I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and check, and I have to look at what the requirements are for that too. But uh, yeah, it's like, like once I get that Riku overdrive, I hang on to that thing like it's precious because but she can do elemental damage if you yep. do her combine. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can also, there are like items that you can use that will have elemental affinities too, which I ended up using in a later boss fight in the section to take out certain enemies and stuff. But I think overall I was just kind of locked into this uh, fight with a very preset, like this is, once you've figured out what this fight is, it's a very straightforward and routine fight without any ways of shifting it beyond that. And I think a later fight that we have, which is the Albed tank that they roll out is at least more interesting because it's working with a couple different mechanics and they're also timed at different ways. So you kind of have to adjust your strategy on the fly to adapt. Whereas this one, like this, this character never really felt like he posed danger to my party once I knew what his trick was. So I, I don't know. It's, it was a weaker boss fight for me. I think I just, the thing that I like, I, I like the more like puzzle oriented fights in this game and I also like one fit where the party just feels like more like there's like a synergy there that mm. I don't feel like always gets replicated in this game like it, it feels like akin more to like a Final Fantasy 13 paradigm shift that like in a way that I really like you know tickles that part of my brain and so that's why I like this and I, I like any chance to use you and outside of the, the like context of simply being the healer and this is the point where like a lot of a lot more of her kit was useful in a way that was kind of like fitting into those puzzle pieces and mm-hmm. that team layout that I had. Yeah. Combat wise, Yuna gets really good in this section, um, especially in the later fight against Seymour. Uh, mm-hmm. She really came in handy for me there, not just through the obvious story related one that we'll get to, but uh, also just the null spells. Once I realized mm-hmm. that they work on the party and not on just mm-hmm. one individual. So they are actually pretty useful. <laughs> I started using them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, once once we kill the big old jelly monster, we get Jack's Sphere, which is basically just kind of a videotape that Jack has left behind that he was filming over the course of Braska's pilgrimage. Uh, we get some footage of them leaving Bavel, um, where he's saying like, "Oh, I want to record this for for Titus so he can see what I did, and you know, well, I'll show it to him when I get back and stuff." And already you can tell that there is the same dynamic happening between Braska and Oren and Jack that's happening with Titus and the rest of the party where they all know 
what's going on and and jack does not yeah um and i think it's interesting because we get two vignettes where you know jack is this happy-go-lucky guy and uh trying to you know egging Oren on and Oren's being the very straight laced like uh no no nonsense dude that he is uh and brosca is just kind of like cheerfully going along with everything and then we get to the end of it where we see jack at the lake that we are at right now and it seems like he is just a completely different person Mm. uh and he's kind of leaving a final message for titus he's like you know if you get this that means you're here and you're going to have to like stop crying and keep moving and and he like gets on the verge he's you know he says almost like he's going to say i love you Mm. and then he just says like i believe in you uh and and moves on uh very very poignant scene i will say mm-hmm. does this yeah. game rehabilitate jekt yeah because i'm thinking about the way that jekt is jekt is presented to us in the beginning of the game it, mm-hmm. it, it, with respect to his relationship to titus sorry um <laughs> it's like he's just like this absentee borderline abusive emotionally mm. unavailable father right mm-hmm. mm. and he kind of remains that way for most of the game like right. and the only way that titus interacts with him is through these these videos where he's like oh you know, and he leaves these messages for the son or whatever and then you hear him you know titus has these like recollections like what are you gonna do are you gonna cry and he's mm. like sitting you know he's crying and you know there's the scene of i don't know if this happens yet where he's like at the water and his mom comes up and she's like you know and titus is like i hate him and he's like you can't say that that's your dad or whatever like mm-hmm. all of the rehabilitation that the game seems to want to do for jack seems a little forced because i don't I, I don't thinking as you know myself and putting myself in titus's shoes like why are you like this now? Like, mm-hmm. why, why, why are you like this when there's a barrier between us? Why couldn't you be a better, mm-hmm. more, why couldn't you say the things that you're saying to me now to my face? And right. I don't know if I were Titus that I would like accept that. Like, oh, well, maybe he really did love me and maybe I could be a little less harsh on him. It's like, no, that kind of pisses me off more because it shows like he's capable of these feelings, right. but he can't do it mm-hmm. where in, in ways that matter. So like you get all the way like up, to, well, I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead for people who, you know, are st- yeah. are playing along who may not mm, play this yeah. game. But it's like a, a lot of I feel like the game wants you to think better of Jet, but I don't think I can. Right. I think there's something to be, and you know, again, like not getting too far ahead of ourselves. I think the game to some extent acknowledges that all of this is coming too late. Like, like he just yeah. even says as soon as he shuts it down, like it's mm-hmm. too late to even say these things. Mm. And um. I think by the time that like you know the game is reaching its resolution, I think there's just kind of a general regret across the room of like I wish things had been different, and it's mm-hmm. probably just too late for it to be that way. And so I think you know you know is that enough? That's you know up to the, the that's in the eye of the beholder, I suppose. But um, I did I, I do agree that like I appreciate that by the time that the game is over, it does feel like yes, these people might have wanted to be different, but it did come at a point. It, it didn't come when it needed to. It, it came, you know, as, you know, years later after Titus has more than established how he feels about this person despite the fact that the world is telling him that this is this great hero that he should respect. And um, and I, I, I like that the game kind of doesn't, you know, end on, like, the cleanest note for these two. Like, it does sort of, like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it lets it be messy and just, like, kind of let you sit with that and take what you want from it. But these characters 
acknowledge that, you know, they weren't what they needed each other to be. And, that you know, that's brave on its own. Like, that's, that's, a, that's not the, the nicest, neatest way to wrap up a story like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, throughout this whole section from Luca up to here, we've been getting little asides from Oren about what Jekt was like and also from Yuna about what Jekt was like. And prior to, I'd say, like the moon flow, Jekt was the very happy-go-lucky dude that we kind of come to expect and also prone to a lot of the vices that he had as a person. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we have the story about him getting extremely drunk and, and uh, attacking a shoe puff and all that. Uh, and... I think it's around the moon flow time is, is where he learns something because then we get to Makalania and he's clearly a different person. Like, you know, we already know from Oren that he never drank again after the moon flow, but uh, he's also clearly much more somber. He's been thinking about things the way he's like sitting down and talking to the sphere instead of doing the sort of selfie cam running around that he was before. Um, and I think it's also reflected in Titus's journey that he's starting to embrace mm-hmm. what this is. And, you know, for Oren here says that Jack had already accepted his fate, that he was probably not going to get to go back. And Titus is starting to go through the same thing here, too, where he realizes that killing Sin, if Sin is the thing that took him from Xanarkin to Spira and could theoretically send him from Spira back to Xanarkin's, killing sin means getting rid of that pipeline. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so he's starting to have to come to terms with the fact that he might not be able to make the return trip either. And it's, it's interesting to see them both come to the same somber realization and project, you know, maybe this was the moment where he was realizing that he was never going to be able to be the person. Like he was never going to be able to share these cool memories with his son and what does that mean? And why does he care so much about being able to do that? Now he's having to go through a lot of things that, you know, he's, he's maybe realizing a lot of things about himself in that moment. And for Titus, he's having to realize a lot about what it means for him that not only does that mean he can't see his dad anymore eventually, but uh, his old, you know, land, this is where he lives now. He has to get used to being here. Uh, and I think it's just interesting to see them take those kind of dual emotional journeys. And also Tita's just completely rebuffed this whole thing. Like Oren even says, you know, Jack loved you. He just didn't know how to express it. And Tita's is just like enough. Like I just, hearing that now doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, it's, it can't worse. do anything. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, it also like puts an interesting twist on Oren's character too, because the more, especially like now playing this game now and, and being of a higher, let's say emotional maturity than I was when I played this game originally (laughs) in 2001. Uh, uh, I'm noticing more interesting nuance in Oren's character, the way that he was clearly going through a lot during his time in Xanarkand with Titus. And he, he says something about like, having to watch over his mother, uh, having to watch over Titus's mother and Titus and, and how much like how emotionally important that was to him. And clearly he's going through a lot where he wants to see some sort of resolution between Jekt and Titus in some way. He wants to see them reconcile in some way, or he's not going to tell them like, you know, Oh, Jekt loved you actually. Um, 
And that's what that's what I was thinking about too, because my memories of the game is like Oren pushes really hard to try to rehabilitate Jack to mm-hmm. Tatis, and I'm like, and it almost seems like you know because we see Oren as this authority figure, and when Titus rejects all of these, like, you know, don't talk to me about my dad, you know, it's like Titus is the bad guy, and like, oh, Oren mm-hmm. is just trying to help, and and mm-hmm. and now it just like kind of recontextualizes that whole dynamic mm-hmm. which is interesting I just you know like he has to do this for his friend otherwise what's the point mm-hmm. and it doesn't okay. work right yeah. like he, he kind of fails in that mission kind of sort of I mean, Oren's a really sad character when you get down oh, to it terrible I he, feel so bad like he's he starts out as the cool stoic dude that everybody wants to be he's the greatest guardian in history he does the he's got like a giant sword in one hand and he's got the other one just hanging out of his sleeve being a cool dude got uh, a sake bottle like this yeah. guy is ready to party and fuck you up all at the same time yeah but then you start to realize that this dude is going through a lot and he's gone through a lot by himself like completely he, alone like he failed twice essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like he couldn't he couldn't do anything to like I mean he I guess what what would he have known uh, how to save Braska. But, mm-hmm. like, he failed Braska, he failed Jekt, and he's failing Jekt again with regards to his son. Yeah. So it's like, oh shit, this fuck sucks. Yeah. And he's, you know what? We, we've been past the Thunderplane, so we, we know mm-hmm. the truth about him, right? Uh, about Orin, not yet. Okay. Yeah. I think that is later as well. Uh, yeah. No, we we are we're at the point of the story now where it feels like they are so heavily foreshadowing some of the spoiler twists that are coming that it's getting hard to talk around them. <laughs> but well, we know the truth about Seymour though, right? Uh oh, we're oh, headed into that. You're learning the truth of Seymour. Uh okay. one of one of the truths of Seymour, let's say. <laughs> um there's there's a lot of truth when it comes to Seymour as well. Uh so as as we get towards that, we are heading out of the Makalania woods now and towards the lake Makalania. Uh, we find it in here, and also Clasco's hanging out. He wasn't with the other Chocobo Knights. He he kind of got left behind. Uh, he asks us if we think he would be a better Chocobo breeder than a knight. I told him breeder. Come on, I like too. he clearly doesn't <laughs> want to be a Chocobo Knight. Right. Like, dude, it's all good. This is. This is. I'm. I'm sorry to keep asking establishing questions. This is after the Meehan High Road, right? This yeah. is after yes. everything yeah, yeah, yeah. that happens with the Chocobo Knights, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh so yeah. Tell him to be a breeder. Like, dude, you see like, what happened? Do you want to go through that again? Yeah. No. Yeah. This this dude clearly wants to live on a farm somewhere, taking care of a bunch of chocobos, living his good life. Every once in a while, you know. I cannot remember the names of the characters all the time. I almost said Patty and Selma, but that's the characters from The Simpsons. <laughs> 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 Uh, the, the, the Chocobo night ladies, um, I don't remember their names. Uh, either. Lucille exactly and you're talking about, yep. the, they're, they're very good friends. <laughs> why, why did I just blanked on one of their names? Lucille is one of them. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. I feel bad now. They're, I'm sorry for the Chocobo night stands out there <laughs> who love these characters. Uh, but yeah, like clearly they, they just come visit him when they need new Chocobos, but he's going to hang out on the, on the farm. He's going to raise a bunch of Chocobos for him. He's going to have a good time. That's, that's where Clasco needs to hang out. It'll be good for him. Um, we head out onto the frozen lake and Tremel, who is kind of Seymour's, uh, attendance, right hand man, manager, publicist. I don't know. Like all of the above. 
Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Hype man. Um, he shows up and he's like, oh, cool. You're here. Uh, don't worry. I'll take Yuna uh, to see more. Y'all don't need to come with me. It's all good. Uh, which is already super suspicious. Uh, and, you know, Titus does a cute little like, oh, you know, it's, as, as she's walking away, he does the whistle um that they that they had done earlier in luca which is a nice little aside even though Oren had to prod him to go do it like hey dude this is your shot do not miss the <laughs> shot um and then they get literally like five feet from the party and a bunch of uh all bed show up on sick uh snow snowmobiles and they have a tank with them and <laughs> Uh, we see brother show up brother from the beginning of the game uh, and starts mm-hmm. arguing with Riku who replies to him in all bed. Um, and she figures out that this uh, tank is going to have an anti-magic field of some sort that will uh, stop Lulu from casting magic and, you know, from summoning aeons. Uh, this tank was a sick boss fight. I like this mm-hmm. one a lot, even though it is, Very good again very easy to figure out i think it's a good example of it's a puzzle to figure out but you have to adapt on the fly come up with interesting solutions uh like i was using the aeons to tank the big mana cannon shots that it does uh the dampener was cool i ended up having to use riku to try and take it out before uh the mana thing fired so that way so I had one turn and waka was not going to be able to act before the big cannon fired so i had to like swap in riku use an item on the dampener to take it out and then bring Yuna in to summon an Aeon to tank the hit. And it was like, that was that feeling of the whole party's working in unison, mm-hmm. the whole party's mm-hmm. working together. And I think like this game shines when it gets that right. And I think some of these boss right. fights in the section really get that right. It, it, those, those are interactions that other Final Fantasy games don't have because they're not like mm-hmm. made to do that. And it's just like, no, right. kind of like, yep. Yeah, it seems like that when, like, a fairly standard turn-based battle system really shines just because, like, it has that one twist on it of, like, not penalizing you for switching out characters. Yeah, and even the idea of, like, swapping a character out in one position to get a specific thing in and then the next turn swapping a different character out to put that previously swapped character back in so you can start doing other stuff. Like, there's so much surprising flexibility in this battle Mm -hmm. system. Like, it's... I. I've always wondered why Final Fantasy has never gone back to this strict turn-based because I know that they, especially with the games starting with 10 and going on, they started to really get experimental with every battle system and they've come up with a lot of really interesting ideas like the Paradigm system. And I actually, I, I think it could be cleaned up, but I like Final Fantasy 15's battle stuff. I think it was better. You're among friends. That shit's great. Yeah, like it's a little I, convoluted, but and it was better it in seven like, reading. Fire correctly, but yeah, yeah, it's no, it's good shit. Yeah, and yeah, they they clearly like needed to improve on it, and then brought it forward into seven remake with some more like classic ATB stuff in it, and I think that was where it, like really shown. But it's, I I would like to see even if it's not a mainline Final Fantasy game, some version of this done by Square Enix again because I think this battle system is so effective and. Uh, it is criminally underutilized and underrecognized. Only one other game recognizes it, and it's the Lord of the Rings role-playing game that completely <laughs> just lifts Final Fantasy X. No uh, shit. Yeah, that what a game. The Third Age, I think was yeah. it. Yeah. I own that, and I don't think I got more than five hours into it. 
Yeah, it's I I read what the plot is because it's so like has nothing to do with the actual plot of Lord of the Rings and it's just like a different story entirely. And I was like, okay, never mind. I'm not as into that. But if it was like we got the whole fellowship and you're swapping them in and out like the Final Fantasy X party, that now we're talking. Now we're <laughs> we're cooking with gas. <laughs> um, so we beat up a tank and uh. Tremel comes up and tries to take Yuna away again. And meanwhile, uh, Riku and brother are arguing in all bed and brother eventually just like takes off after Riku's like, I'm a guardian now. Like you got to deal with this. I imagine I want to go and read later what the fully translated argument yeah. here is. Cause you can kind of make out some of it. If you have enough, uh, all bed, uh, dictionaries up to this point, uh, and it's it's like interesting that at this point it does feel rewarding to be like, oh, I'm starting to understand some of the words they might be saying and all that. Um, but then Waka gets involved. <laughs> oh. Waka's like, why are you speaking all bad, huh? <laughs> Wait, does he not know? No, he no, didn't. This is, where, this is where he finds out. This is where he finds so out. So everybody else in the party, though, knows that she's all bad. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Everyone in Spira no she's out because later on <laughs> when we get to Makalania temple you go up to go into the temple and there's a priest at the front and he's like uh we don't want Albed coming in here when he sees Riku like he on site knows that Riku is Albed meanwhile Waka who is super racist against Albed could not spot one oh. when it's fighting when, when when Riku is fighting next to him like what are you doing, Walk? <laughs> um, so this is this is a failure on everybody's part because if everybody knows, somebody should have like taken him to the side, like, "Yo, calm down," because yeah, we've already established that Riku and Yuna are related, right? Uh, or have I, it's been implied at this point. Yeah, I don't know if it's been officially said yet. I think no, I, I think Sid shows up, and then that's when those conversations happen. Yeah, um, yeah, it happens in the next section we'll get to, which is the home slash Beaconel Island. But I think it has already kind of been alluded to because Yuna says something about Riku being a friend or something like that. So okay, um, because I'm like, if if she's already shown up and is you know we established their connection or their relationship, somebody's job should have been to call to take Waka aside and be like, yeah, we know you've got hangups, but she's one of us right now, so we right. need you to straighten the fuck out. Mm-hmm. and yeah. nobody does that yeah so this poor girl has been enduring like microaggressions for the entire trip mm. oh yeah yuna and riku both like <laughs> it's because right oh yeah i mean we had the scene on the shoe puff where Waka's just going off on this facebook rant of anti-albed <laughs> shit and yuna's just sitting there like extremely uncomfortably <laughs> right and i think that that kind of like comes back to like my, what my issue with the scene at large is like after it all clicks in his head. They, like, Riku and Waka get in, like, this huge debate about, you know, Yevin, Machina, the nature of Finn, etc. And it, like, it goes on, like, long enough for... There were plenty of points where people to just jump in and be like, hey, fuck off. And even when, like, the, the debate starts to, like, stop, everyone's reaction to it, it just feels a little too tempered for my taste. Like, everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, like, take, take this as an opportunity to learn more about the Albed. And... 
uh, like later when we're on, if if you get the ride with Lulu, and she's like, I hope you're not too mad at Waka Titus, and I was like, maybe you should be. Maybe you should be mad at him. Maybe everyone should stop acting like like the fucking racist grandpa at Thanksgiving that we should just like tolerate the things that he says all the time. It's like fuck, like be angry at him. Tell him that his the shit that he's doing is bullshit. Ugh. Like he like he even has a fucking moment where he's like, is 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 Sir Oren Albed too? Because. Oren has like the like one question about like it doesn't like entertains the use of Machina, and mm-hmm. it's just like I I just I wish that people were like more willing to call walk out than they, and than they are in this moment, and I think a lot more of that comes to a head it, like when we get to home, and like you know yeah. they have yeah. to deal with like it's right in front of them they have to deal with what this sort of stigma around these people has done to these people, yeah. but uh, here everyone's just kind of like oh just just let him let him go blow off some steam, like, let him walk away, get some air. Just not, it's not, um, as, like, drastic a response to his shit as I would have liked here. This, this was the moment where, you know, I already liked Riku from what, you know, there was in the beginning of the game, and she was just that, like, uh, like, plucky, beat people up type character that I liked a lot, uh, as a character, and then we get to this section where she's just, completely refuting all of Waka's like mm-hmm. thinly held uh mm-hmm. like bullheaded beliefs and she's just like why do you accept that and like he tries to to pull this oh so where do you think sin came from if you can't prove it then then Yevon's right and all that because Yevon says this comes for this and, and and she's just like why are you okay with that answer like why are you not right. questioning anything that has been told to you like why are you so willing to accept so much without asking any questions and and especially like the unspoken thing here that we'll eventually get to in home is you know why are you so okay with something terrible that's going to happen and just accepting it as like the way of life here yeah um and this this is the part where like it really reaffirms that riku is my favorite character in this party uh she's great i love this character mm. also this the second thing that this reaffirmed because I also got the Lulu snowmobile ride. Um, mm. That the greatest crime in Final Fantasy X is that they ship Lulu with Waka and <laughs> put her on Besaid to to live and out they her leave days. Her there. I yeah. know what the fuck was that? It's a crime against nature. At least she still gets to wear her belt dress. Like mm. she's like nine months pregnant in that damn belt dress. Sorry. Like, uh, like Lulu, um, Lulu should have damn. been able to like rise Chapu from the dead, and they could like take off on the airship in in ten two with YRP and be the sick like operators like the Misato in the end of not <laughs> not end of Evangelion, but the the rebuilds like hanging out on the ship being the operator and all that. Like instead, she's on Besaid with Waka terrible yeah, like what like a what a terrible downgrade what a terrible Ugh. settling like Lulu Ugh. doesn't seem like the type to settle and it seems mm-hmm. like like oh god i'm getting too old I, uh, uh, you're the most <laughs> decent looking male specimen here so you're in pro- my proximity and and yeah. like if i close my eyes and squint or if i if i close my eyes and you know focus hearing he sounds like chapu so i can deal with it and i'm like oh and honey, like you didn't need to go out like that <laughs> <laughs> on on the snowmobile ride too like lulu really gets to shine because she's openly being like yeah you know i was raised under yevon my whole life but the more i've been around y'all the more i've been listening to the stuff that riku and you have been saying 
the more I've been wondering, you know, maybe there are some questions. And she she has like a really great line where she says like, there's never been a reason for us to know. So no one's ever really asked, you know, like when sin is destroying your town, does it really matter if you know where it came from? You just have the option of fighting or fleeing. You don't really have reason to ask questions, but the more you do ask questions, the more you start to wonder about everything that Yevon's been telling you. And it's a great scene and she really shines in it. I'm just sitting here like, this is such a good character. And God, the way she just gets yeah, sidelined as the series goes on. Oh. I know we're, we're talking about it. Like, I don't know if either of y'all like saw like, the interviews as to why Lulu did not like end up occupying the third seat on the party of Tentu, but they generally talked about like the dynamic between Yuna and Riku is, you know, as it is in this game, and they imagined that if they had Lulu be like the third pillar of that, she would have just shut down like the chatter and like the the fun spirited nature of the two characters together. So they wanted Pain, who but would make Pain already kind of... does that. Yeah, but and they I guess the way they described it is like Pain would be more likely to just kinda of, like stand by and let it happen while focusing on her own shit, where Lulu would be like less tolerant of it. So I don't know. Like I it, it's I, it's mm. flimsy and like it's also weird to me that Pain is like you know, design wise the sword. Yeah. Yeah, like design wise like she feels like the kind of like the natural evolution of what Lulu would have looked like in Tentu had she been a party member. I mean, we, we take Yuna and we give her guns, you know, yeah. and then why don't we just give Lulu a sword? Like, that's essentially what pain is. Like, yeah. Yuna, like, leveled up and became this, like, super, you know, competent badass. And mm-hmm. Lulu was, you know, prime candidacy. She was, like, halfway there already for most yeah. of the 10, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, we, we could have taken that extra step, but we didn't. I yeah. guess the way that I would rationalize it is that Lulu was already already like a very big mom figure for Yuna, mm. and I think for YRP they want someone more on their like equals instead of like right. that like un yeah. un unmatched you know relationship. So it makes sense in that regard. Yeah. Damn. Like Waka. Come on. <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. Like if you're not going to put Lulu in the party for Ten Two have her at least have some role that is still somewhat active in the story that doesn't involve her just kind of being like going from mom figure to just actual mom in Mm. in besaid like if she had been that sort of misato like you know or or, um who's the the character in batman um that always oracle yeah like an oracle type character that's you know, the voice on the computer that, that helps them with all the operations stuff back on the airship and all that. She would have been great for that. And then you can have she, fun little asides from her and all that. Instead, like... Do we she absolutely really, could have been a mom and done all that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Barrett, look at Barrett and Marlene. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It, she, she would have been out of danger. You know, she could have had her baby strapped to her back or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, just running the comms. There, there, there could have been a great scene where like the airship's getting attacked and Lulu is like getting up from the chair and she's like, "I'm getting tired of just sitting by and all this shit," and just like Zeta flares a ship out of the sky. Like, oh, Lulu is a cool character. It feels like so much wasted potential. I we're gonna be harping on this for a long time because we have much more Final Fantasy ten to go. But that that does just like strike out at me as this is a character that could have been a lot more and just feels sidelined for very little reason. Um, anyways, oh, I got that rant out of my system. <laughs> we, we get to Makalania Temple, which is just absolutely stunning. Like, I cannot believe they made this on a PlayStation 2. This is like a floating suspended temple over a frozen sort of lake. Mm. And 
it looks i mean granted i'm playing this on a playstation 5 a playstation 4 version remaster of uh, a ps2 game on the ps5 <laughs> but still just not not even just the graphics but the design of this place mm-hmm. the scale of what it is and i still remember the end of this section where you're escaping and running mm-hmm. away from it and just remembering the scale of what this giant thing is uh this is a massively impressive rpg for its time yeah. uh it's it like i can't believe this was made 20 years ago at some points yeah even it, even when the graphics fall short like the design is so incredible it's also like the second best representation of shiva in all of final fantasy oh yeah no, we're, we're like the first is obviously like the motorcycles, like <laughs> from Final Fantasy Thirteen. Um, mm. We can fight about that if you want to, but that's the best Shiva. But this is the second best Shiva. Like that bitch is bad. Like oh, the God. hair, like with the. Uh, uh, Sit down, uh, Thanos. You, know, she, like, you can't snap up, like, like that. Oh, like the her. snap on Diamond yes. Dust is so good. Yes, yes. Like bad bitch, bad bitch, baddest bitch. The way, the way she flings off the cloak and Yuna yes. just like catches it is so good. Like the, the summon animations we were talking like, about. Like Yuna is simping for this woman. Exactly. Yes. Like yeah. Yuna summons like they all like she commands them. But with fucking Shiva like this bitch is like oh no you're the one clearly running the show. <laughs> Best shit. Oh yeah mm. no it's the, the summon animations in this game are absolutely incredible. And I think Shiva's just all around her design the like her her animations everything is just absolutely fantastic portrayal i also i like final fantasy 15's shiva but only specifically at the very very end Mm -mm. in the ifrit fight no because this bit no i'm I'm upset by that because it's the whole like the hexatheon and they're all fighting and shiva is in love with ifrit and then ifrit get corrupted you know fuck that that's dumb. Stupid. <laughs> I hate it. Like, no. Shiva, bitch, do better. <laughs> I feel like I'm playing on fair. Shiva in 15. So she was, I mean, okay, Final Fantasy 15 spoilers for the next, like, five minutes. But uh, she she was, like, this attendant-type character for um, Luna Freya? Yes. The, the princess. Um, and she uh she's kind of like hanging around for most of the story and kind of doing stuff and acting as an in-between for you and and luna uh and then obviously things transpire uh but she shows up again near the end end of the story after the time skip and it it's basically revealed that she was secretly shiva the whole time and um she her summon thing is basically she turns into a bunch of Shivas, like a bunch of different avatars, and uh, Ifrit, you're obviously fighting Ifrit at the very end, and they all kind of do this big diamond dust to freeze him and snap him and stuff like that. Um, it's not it's not nearly as cool as Final Fantasy X's, but I thought the portrayal, I, I like the portrayal of Shiva as a potential like multitude of bodies and not just one single character. Uh, which is actually one of the things I do like about the 13 motorcycle thing, whatever. But uh, I can also see how people would not like 15's Shiva. So I think Ash is more on that. Just like, <laughs> she just shows up and just like info dumps. And when you understand what that story was supposed to be, you were mm. supposed to be like eased into that whole, like the, the, the conflict with all the different gods, which are also the summons and all that stuff. You're supposed yeah. to be eased into that a lot 
better than mm-hmm. what happens where she just shows up and freezes all of your shit. It's like this is the story and this is why this is all happening and shit like that. Just like I, I was just like fed up. I was really upset about it. But I was I upset do- about it because of the way it was portrayed and I was mad because this was supposed to be so much better and then they didn't get a chance to make that game. Mm. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, look, that's the story of Final Fantasy XV, yeah, right? Like that, yeah. there's a very good game in there that just kind of gets undone by a lot of the ways in which it was ultimately released and then re-released and then added onto and then piled on top of like um if anything needs a remake it's that game which which is weird it's like the most recent final fantasy and it definitely needs a remake but yeah i I would love to you know 10 20 years down the line see that get a a re re reimagining of some sort but i do just really like the way it frames the summon when like one of one of the Shivas comes up on Noctis's like right hand side and he kind of turns and you see another one walk behind him. It's like all these Shivas start coming out and like it's summons in 15 are the first time I think they got as cool as they were in 10. Some of 13 summons are cool, too, but I really think like 10 held the trophy for a long time. And then 15 mm. was just like, what if these were God sized summons? Um. Anyways, we'll talk more about Shiva in a second when we actually get to Shiva. <laughs> um, we we already talked about the dude that tries to stop Riku at the front. Uh, Oren shuts that dude down real quick. Um, Shalinda's inside. She's stoked about the wedding. Um, Yuna is already in the cloister trials with Seymour. And we're kind of just hanging out and, and waiting around. And then someone runs out of another room because they found Jiskel's sphere in Yuna's belongings and are clearly shaken by what they have seen. Uh, so all the guardians head in to watch the, the sphere that Jiskel had brought out from the, uh, Oh, help me out, Ken. Um, the, the other world, the other far plane, plane. far plane, thank far you. plane, uh, <laughs> that Jiskel's spirit had brought out from the far plane. Uh, it's Jiskel kind of just like, posting a twit longer about his son in (laughs) in video form like he's talking about like seymour is a bad person he's done all this terrible stuff he's got darkness in him he wants to use everyone to some terrible end but then finally like drops the ball on what it actually is is like seymour is gonna kill me like i know that seymour is going to murder me uh i i this is just cool he's like i i i'm cool with it I brought this upon myself, but the world needs to know that this is what Seymour's up to, and someone needs to stop him because I can't. Um, Titus is already like, okay, no, we got we got to go murder this guy now. <laughs> like he's immediately got the justification he needs to fight Seymour that he has been looking for for some time. They can finally well, hear the, the scary music in the background now. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's not the only one hearing Seymour's theme anymore. Uh, but Waka, God, freaking Waka is like, but he's a maester. We can't harm him. Like, dude, this, this guy has murdered his own father and is now alone in a room with Yuna and Waka's like, ah, it's probably fine. Don't worry about it. Like, and, and the way Titus is just immediately like, fine, just stay here. If you don't give a shit, like I got to go help someone out and be good and, and do good stuff. Oh. Is it at least like an example of like, people are finally starting to like, it's not really have the patience for Waka anymore. And that was yeah. at least like, 
yeah. it was just like this this represents the part where everybody starts pushing against the prescribed um, right like notions of what it means to be a summoner and a guardian on a pilgrimage mm-hmm. and you know that eventually comes to a head when we get to you know where but yeah this is like that first point where like you know what this is kind of bullshit mm-hmm and and we we run through the cloister of trials, uh, which we will have to do later after finishing this part. Um, and we find Seymour waiting outside the faith where Yuna's been praying. Um, and you know we're about to confront him when Yuna uh, comes out, and we're like, "Hey, we saw the sphere. We know what's up. We know why you're doing this." Uh, and Seymour is just straight up like, "Yeah, like he doesn't like. Ad- I don't think he admits to it. Admits to it. He's just like, they're just like, oh, we." you killed your father and he's like, and what of it or whatever. He's just like, who cares? Um, who going to be my ass, which I appreciate. Yeah. Like Seymour is a bitch, like, in a <laughs> like a queen bitch, like kind of deals. Like who's going to be my ass? Not you. <laughs> Obviously. Cause you fight them motherfucker like six, seven times after this. I curse a lot. I'm really sorry. So, okay. it's, it's good. People, people come into this podcast expecting it at some point. Um, Not for children. We, normally. If yeah. Yeah. We, in dragon age origins, we literally talked about monster fucking so many times. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is okay. Then I'm, I'm among, I'm among my friends. <laughs> we, we are past safe, that safely, line. Safely. <laughs> There was a line. We have clearly crossed it. Now we're just seeing how far we can go past it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Yuna basically admits that her plan was that she was going to try and stop Seymour. Uh, again, Yuna, you know, admirable, bold plan, maybe not going to turn out the way you thought it was going to. Um, and, and you know, Seymour is just straight up like, Oh, come back to me. And she's like, nah, and backs up. And, and Seymour is like, okay, well, if we're going to fight, then we're going to fight and I will kill you. And Yuna, you know, shout out to Yuna, picks up her, her staff and is like, if you're going to fight my guardians, you're going to have to fight me too. And my aeons, like, I'm not going to let you just fight my friends. Uh, and then we get into like, oh, this is one of my favorite boss battles in the game. Straight up. This it's, is a, if this is what I think it is, this is a fucked up battle. And it was kind of hard, like, the first time around. No. Like, oh, don't you fight, yeah. like, his guards, too? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so he's got two guards with him that cast uh, Protect and Shell, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Pain in the ass. And they, like, auto-potion. Yeah. Um, this, this, the, the next Seymour fight on the mountain, because that oh, one's a bitch. You know, Mount Gag that is That one's a, hard. Yeah, that one stonewalled me for a long time i was stuck yeah. on that for so long um like this th- this fight is so cool because it's basically a three-phase boss fight because you have seymour with his guards and his you, know, you basically need to focus on taking out his guards uh because otherwise i think if you try to fight seymour it's basically like an unwinnable battle so you need to like focus on taking them out and they have auto potion which means you have to Mm. kind of futz with the systems in ways to like either take them out in a single shot or do enough damage that you're going to break through the healing that they're doing Mm -hmm. um so it feels like it's a really rewarding thing. And then on top of that, Seymour has his own like spell rotation that he's moving through. And so we're once again, seeing the idea that the sphere morph brought up of this character is going to go through a rotation of elements. So if you have Yuna in and you're using the null spells, then you're rewarded and you won't take any damage. And it feels like a good reward of understanding how the systems work and how to manipulate them to your advantage, because you are up against like, a very, very powerful enemy. One that's already been established as powerful, 
when you fought alongside him earlier in the game, when you had him in your party, you could see how much more powerful this character was than the rest of your party. So now you've got an idea of what you're up against and you get to see how much your party has grown in the fight since like it's, Mm. feels very rewarding in that sense. Mm. And so you get through that first fight, you take the bodyguards out and Seymour's like, okay, we're done playing games and summons anima and Hey, this thing that you've previously only seen in cutscenes, like just massacring dozens of fiends in a blitzball stadium. Now you have to fight it and it is huge and it is terrifying. And, uh, I think it's Waka yells out like, Yuna, the Aeon, use it, like summon the faith, and you swap in Yuna, and if you go into the summon menu, you have your three summons that you have so far, and then all question marks is the last one, and that's when you get the summon of Shiva, and it's, oh, it's such a good moment, it's so good, it it works today, mm-hmm. like, playing it, knowing what's coming, I'm still like, mm-hmm. this is so hype, this is so good, and you get to square off Aeon versus Aeon against, you know, Yuna versus Seymour, and I know that, like, Veil 4 is supposed to kind of be Yuna's Aeon and all that, like, it was the first one she gets, and it she's obviously got, like, a connection to it being from Besaid and all that, but... This fight is what really cements Shiva as Yuna's Aeon for me. And I felt like every time I would summon, Mm. like, from here on out, I would, like, resort to Shiva as that go-to summon. Because it just feels like this is the moment where Yuna is fighting back and, like, going toe-to-toe with a Maester of Yevon in an Aeon battle. It just... Mm oh this fight's yep. so good it's so good and we haven't even talked about the the talk commands yet where you can talk to seymour and and like oh, use yeah. an it, like, action buffs him or something it, it or, buffs like, it, it buffs if you, you did it right yeah yeah um like this is just such a cool fight uh, ken how did you feel about this this whole thing uh it's very good uh like like you said like i remember the first time because this is this was my, the first final fantasy i'd ever played at the time and um it was the way that they like present Shiva to you as a thing, like with only question marks, like I I didn't know who Shiva was when I got into this game, and so it was just, like you know you have the sudden like enigmatic thing on your team that you don't really understand, and like mm-hmm. you know, by and large that is what Aeons are. They are these unknowable things that we don't really understand really at this point. But to have like this character that was like very like impactful, like when she when she first showed up, like because of all the reasons that we talked about earlier, um, it was just like it's one of those scenes where, like, the Aeon, like, stuck with me in a way that, um, mm-hmm. only really, like, I would say, like, Bahamut and Anima, like, you know, I guess in, in the grand scheme of the game, like, s- still are striking to me in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's, like, it was a really, like, ballsy way, way to present that, and, you know, cause the, the more seasoned Final Fantasy uh, player is gonna, like, know that it's, like, very excited about this, but I think keeping that, like, that enigma of who she was to me was just, like, something that I think I wouldn't have had had I played other Final Fantasy before this. Um, so I think that that's just... That that particular thing sticks out to me as, like, a very singular experience I would not have gotten had one other thing in my video game playing, uh, you know, journey, if you will. Uh, if one thing had been different, uh, that's, that entire segment might have felt different to me. But yeah, like, that, like you said, this is, like... It's really Yuna's fight. Like, it is, you know... A, a party-wide effort, but it is the point where, like, a lot of Yuna's idealism is kind of, like, being put to the test, because, like, she did have vaguest, uh, semblance of a plan, and 
it's not really panning out the way she wanted it to, and she was maybe not prepared for the way that Seymour would be as far gone as he appears. Because like he's full mm-hmm. full blown Joker mode at this point. Like you know when you have those those talk mans, um, like he just like toying with Titus, like oh my sincerest apologies for you you thinking that I was like bad news since the first time we met and um like saying like really like creeper shit to Yuna like you know mask off at this point like we we are dealing with a more human foe than we have well i mean half half human half guado uh foe than you know sin and and despite the fact that it is you know jacked and there is all of that baggage with it we've not really had like you know a grounded foe at this point like and mm-hmm. you know and mm, yeah. and he also is like the, he's like the face of you know what is going to be like the larger conflict of this group is going to is basically about to go against everything they've ever been taught and that's why Walker is just like in his feelings about all of this. Yeah, it's it's like a it's a huge turning point for the game. And as as you know, the resident unit stand on this podcast, uh, I am very glad to see that this character is finally having to, you know, kind of like this is where the rubber meets the road and what she's gonna she's kind of like been gearing herself up to be for like the past ten hours. Mm-hmm. Ash, did this fight really stick out to you too? Only because I remember um the guards and how they would just they they would mess me up with mm. how they would like cast protect on Seymour and stuff like that. I just remember that fight being like particularly brutal, not knowing of the hell that awaited me on Mount Gagazet. Mm. <laughs> it's it's such a cool also, fight. Yeah. Is this like a safe space to confess that like Seymour's kinda hot? Have I mean, we had this discussion? This uh, is the time to have it, I suppose. Yeah. I don't think because, he's like, he's not getting any hotter. I I don't know. I he's hot. I like him. I like a little soft spoken voice and mm. I don't know. Like his hair is weird, but like that's okay. Like it's a lot of gel, but we can wash that out. Mm. But you know, he he's kind of hot. I always thought he was hot, you know, with his like little half open shirt and shit and he's got like those tattoos on his chest and like Damn, okay, yeah, I mean, I'd say he's, yes, too. He's, like, clearly meant to be sexy. Like, both I mean, in, like, you know, his design like, and, like, the way that he... Up until this point, Final Fantasy villains aren't necessarily meant to be sexy, uh... I think, But they're meant... To, no, no, hold on. They're meant to be, like, these kind of, like, very effeminate, very, like, I am very queerly... I am very uh, mm. explicitly queer-coded mm. villain. Yep. Because okay. you've got Kuja, you've got Kafka, yeah. you've got uh, nah, Adia is probably like you know the share of the group, um, but definitely like Kuja and Kafka for sure. And then you've got Seymour who kind of fits into that archetype too. But like, yes, he's kind of queer coder, but he was way more strongly like like supposed to be appealing to like the female gaze mm. than either Kuja before him and then like Kafka before that. Like, me personally. Like, I wasn't attracted to Kuja. I kind of was, but I kind of wasn't. <laughs> for me in Final Fantasy IX. No one. Um, which is upsetting. Which is why it's my least favorite. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, like, Kuja, I wasn't, like, I didn't get it. Because he was very, supposed to be, like, very, very feminine. And But Seymour was, like, they toned it down a little bit. And, like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I can do this. Is there something different about it being like Yuna is such a central force to the story too that like it's it, it feels like it's more involved for for you as the player like Seymour is not just you know being this 
dude over here that's got a little bit of suaveness to him, a little bit of like, you know, open shirt, tattoos, all that. He's got a look, but he's also like directly trying to seduce Yuna and like very confidently too. Like he from the get go is trying to seduce Yuna. Um I I mean I, maybe so because as we will no doubt get into, Final Fantasy Ten is a very sexual game. Oh yeah. Like it's like oh, the yeah. most sexual up until this point. Yeah. Of all the fantasies. I I'd even say of all the Final Fantasies up to this point because You would be correct. You would be correct. Yeah. I mean I mean, like, I don't know about. We can Lord. argue about Final Fantasy fourteen. Yeah, I was gonna say the to. stuff I've seen about fourteen. Uh, fourteen fans seem incredibly horny all the time, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, like thirteen and fifteen, especially fifteen. Now that I think about it, uh, incredibly not like sex, sexual, sexually I, themed games. Yeah, thirteen. No. I would say as well is like kind of a sexless game and like yeah. even like the trilogy as a whole like that's not really like you know there's like sarah and snow that's like the one sort and of like Neil love thing obviously oh yeah. yeah yeah that's that is canonical. but it's not like oh it's fair it's not sex right but final yeah. fantasy 10 is horny as hell mm. yeah and i mean it 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 solidifies things it's it's not like going to the the thing with 15 that always kind of bummed me was that I felt like the the bond between the party was really important and it kept trying to be like, oh, and also Noctis loves Luna Freya too. And I'm like, does he? I don't know. They've had like four scenes together in this video game total. Uh, I'm not getting that as much as I'm getting the party stuff. Uh, It feels weird. And like even thinking on it now, like there's, you know, there is like the theme of like religious, like suppression of things Mm. in 10 Mm -hmm. and so, like, there's almost, like, a, a catharsis to when things do finally, like, escalate to a certain point. And then, you, like, you even compare it to, like, how these characters are portrayed in 10 too. Like, there is a sense of, like, sexual liberation in mm. there, both, like, design, just, like, the way that people act and, like, talk about things. Um, hmm. Like, implicit consider. and explicit. Yeah. Like, you've got the divine thing that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and then, like, the very explicit where, you know, you or Lulu's walking around nine months pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's still out. <laughs> God bless uh. her. Um. Yeah, and even like I, we we will get to it much much later in the series. But when we get into the stuff surrounding like Lady Lady Unaleska and kind of the stuff that we learn from her and the revelations around that, also like add some weight to relationships being a core part of the the way this world operates right. in a in a way that's like yeah this this game goes for it in ways that. I don't think we've seen Final Fantasies really go for since and it before it, or since, of, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh maybe I should play Final Fantasy fourteen at some point. <laughs> Whenever you do, I keep thinking you know about where to it. call me. I keep thinking about it. I don't know what class I want to play. That's I think that's my biggest hurdle. You can play all of them. I and know it's I, easy to switch between them. I know I can play all of them. It's just, you know, I, I wanna play one and you know, kinda get feet on the ground with one and I got to figure out, you know, like which one's good to solo with and, and yada, yada. It's, it's, it's a lot. We'll um, have a conversation offline later. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it's that, that might be my like winter break project is to finally get into that game, but you get a break in winter. I mean, nice. I mean, when, when, the, <laughs> when the games stop and everyone, you know, the games industry, one of, one of the few things I do enjoy about working in the games industry is that, 
it's like an agreed upon rule that when Christmas rolls around, everybody just kind of stops doing things and stops releasing news and video games and stuff. And everybody's just like, okay, we're ostensibly still working, but for two weeks, we're just going to roll out game of the year lists and not announce anything. And we'll see everybody when the new year starts. (laughs) And so that's always when I knock a game or two off of my backlog. Like last year it was super Metroid. I finally played super Metroid. Um, And so maybe, maybe this year Final Fantasy 14 might end up in that, in that couple of weeks. Uh, anyways, so the last thing I wanted to say about this boss fight that I like a lot is I mentioned before, like the way that it is, it is established up to this point, how powerful Seymour is and how powerful anima is. And these like two things that you're having to fight and overcome. And I like that the third phase of this fight, when you get to it, it's just Seymour by himself and he's getting double actions essentially like he's getting to double up on all of his spells but by this point you have overcome you know Seymour's handpicked guardians you have overcome anima itself and the horrifying uh overdrive that anima has that is just every time i see it i'm like oh uh. um and and now Seymour is just like at his life's end trying to fling spells at you and you are just annihilating him with with magic and mastery and it feels great um i i think this this fight overall just works so so well in in making you feel like you've really come a long way uh as as a player and as a party <sighs> so we murdered seymour how's everyone feel about that <laughs> he's still hot <laughs> even, <laughs> even in death we can't take that from him <laughs> yeah oh i i mean this is it's a big moment though right like we have i i've also been watching the sopranos recently i finally decided to oh. start watching the sopranos and okay i i kept thinking during this section like oh we just killed a made man <laughs> like that's oh, no. that's that's what we've done is like we we have done one of the things that you're not supposed to do you know this is a maester of yevin uh, we've got theoretical evidence against him that we could hold up to justify this, but we have just murdered this dude. <laughs> um, and they do not really pull not punches about that. Dead. Well, mm, so he's not he... sent. Yeah, so he's dead, but you wouldn't know it unless you were in the room. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he just like walks around like, eh, eh. Yeah. Like, do other people know that he's dead? The the sense that you get is that, like, only, like, Tremel knows at this point. Us and Tremel, because... The, yeah, the Guado know. Because, yeah, so, like, I mean, does it count if other people don't think you've murdered him? If he's still just, like, walking around, like, you know, planning a wedding and shit? Like, does it really count? I... I never thought about that. Like, what is... If you murder somebody in Spira, what does, like, the law say if they don't get sent? I mean, well, like if they're just still around. At, at yeah. this point, at this point, our knowledge of sent versus unsent is just that if people die and their souls do not get sent, then they turned in, they turn into fiends. Like mm-hmm. that is our understanding as of this point in the story. Um, as as we've kind of already mentioned, we're not done with Seymour yet. No. <laughs> so, um. This, this is going to start posing interesting problems with multiple characters as we later learn 
maybe some more revelations about what Yevon and the practice of Yevon is and what all this stuff is. Um, and I do feel like this is a spot of the lore that I really need to refresh myself on because the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, wait a minute, how does this work? Mm. But uh, yeah, they're, they're basically like, you know, Oren is just straight up. So, you know, we, we murdered Seymour and the Guado troops start rolling in with Tremel and Oren's just immediately like, Yuna, send him, like send him right now, like finish it. And she doesn't get her chance. Um, you know, he's, he's just like, y'all are a bunch of traitors. Uh, and they drag Seymour's body out. Um, and Titus, uh, we first we have to go back through the Cloister of Trials, and I think this is one of the weirdest pacing choices in the game because we're supposed to be like following the uh, the Guado troops back out of the the Cloister mm-hmm. or out of the Faith, and so is is the intention here since we just kind of walked in the first time is that they got across and then undid the cloister of trials just to like fuck with us. That might be the way to make, cause I mean, when we get through, we're going to see that Tremel had a, a grand plan as to what he was going to do uh, to kind of impede our progress here. Right. So maybe that is the point. Is it like they kind of like buy some time? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, weird thing. And also this cloister, I, it's not the worst one in the game, but it is an annoying one to figure out. I see, Ken, that you locked yourself out yeah. of part of it. That that is one of the things. Like you, this is one of. I, I guess it's the first time where you can, like, not knowing how all this works. You can accidentally like put a sphere you need to progress on a like an ice pillar that you have to do like this really roundabout way to get access to. And I did that, and was like, it took me like forty five minutes to try and figure out. Uh what i like both how to get the figures i needed back but also just like i don't know like it it was it was maddening to me for like it, and it wasn't even because of like the actual like a to b get from one side to the other of the bridge thing it was i tried to use the destruction sphere and like get through that whole like sub puzzle and yeah. that's where i fucked myself up because i was holding on to like one of the spheres that i needed when I was doing all those transactions and kind of like hid a sphere from me that like, I basically like lost a sphere for like 30 minutes mm. and it, uh, it sucked. Yeah. This is one of the more like just fiddly, uh, like, like the other cloister that I don't like, I mean, we only have one cloister left, I guess, but after this, but, um, oh, mm, two, we have two left, right? It's uh, Bahamut and, uh, yeah, Bahamut. And well, isn't there? Have is, you done Ixian left? Have we, you done? No, Ixian we did. Yeah, we already got. Doesn't um, doesn't Xanarkand have one? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. But I always read that one because it, it, you know, story reasons is not necessarily tied to a specific summon that Yuna achieves. Let's right. let's put it that way. Um, so yeah, I always forget that one. But uh, Bevel is my least favorite just because it feels oh, yeah. like arduous to mm-hmm. do. It is the longest one and hopefully it feels better now on like a ps5 where some of that stuff might be a little bit more expedient but man oof, that one i uh, haven't oh. just played this about a year ago um it's not oh great <laughs> love that for us on normandy mm. fm <laughs> um but yeah we we get out of the cloister and everyone's already already gathered around in the lobby uh, Yuna's trying to tell 
Tramel what happened, but he's like, nah, I don't care. Like we know what's going on and we know what we're going to tell the Maesters. Like we protect the Guado. Seymour advanced us to where we are. We're not going to let you like ruin all of that. And then somebody is like, oh, we got proof. And he's like, oh, Jiskel's sphere. And he like just breaks it. And so <laughs> I, I remember every time I see that, I'm like, man, really should have protected that sphere better. <laughs> like, mm. That's the one thing y'all probably should have kept an eye on. Should have made backups. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's no USB drives in Spira, I guess. Uh, so now uh, Oren being sage and wise and and smart and and well learned basically does the equivalent of knocking the water pitcher over and yelling run it's <laughs> <laughs> like peace out of here he, in the cutscene actually he like runs through yeah. like these these people that are standing there and they don't really like try to stop him they just kind of stand there and get nudged to the side like like you're push, pushing through an npc in a video game it's very good uh, i love that scene for no reason in particular <laughs> um and then we do this this chase scene where we're basically getting chased back across all the sections that we had just traveled across. So out of Makalania Temple, back across the the like chasms that we had gone through in the snowmobiles, all the way back to Lake Makalania, and uh, we fight a few Guado forces. They I I only got caught once. Um, it's there's one dude that will just haul ass after the party fucking, to catch you. It's a scary moment. Like that fucking dude is booking it at you. He he Naruto runs like no one has ever Naruto ran before <laughs> and just like runs you down. He, he reminds me of when Pokemon Sword and Shield came out and there were all the gifts of like uh, Machamp chasing trainers around <laughs> in the field. That's this dude. Like he's terrifying. Uh, but we beat him up. And then uh, we we get to a boss battle with a Wendigo, which just kind of shows up. That. Yeah, this this is a weird. It was a weird fight because he's actually a pretty tough boss, and like can one hit KO a lot of characters, and it does it, it does one of the things that I think Final Fantasy X also does very smart, which is reward you for understanding how items can interact. So there's one particular boss fight later on that I think is the one that people always point to, which is the, it's like an undead dragon or whatever. Yeah. Um, love that. Do that every time. It's fantastic. Every, every time, every game, I've, there's always one. I feel like it's the same thing as like, as a big Zen wedge. Like there's uh -huh. always like just, just the, the one boss that's undead that you can just like easy mode. If you just cast cure or revive or whatever. Yeah. Like and it's, it, Final Fantasy nine. It feels so other, good. Another one of my favorites. It's it's so good every time. It's like a little every inside time. joke, you know. It's the 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 four five one the Deus Ex code. Like that's the Deus Ex code for Final Fantasy. Like it just <laughs> oh, it's excellent. Um, but the Wendigo, I it's it's a tough fight, and y you can like make it easier by uh, knowing how to cure its berserk. So basically, taking berserk off of it so it can't as easily annihilate you, but it can still pretty easily one hit mm -hmm. KO you with some of its moves. Um, and it, it was a fine fight. It wasn't the worst fight. It wasn't the best fight. It was just a fight that happened. I think it's I don't care about it because... It's the three that we've talked about in the show. Four. We've had four boss fights. We had, oh, right. I forgot about the fucking tank. Yeah. yeah. The tank. <laughs> I love the tank. Tank was my second favorite of this whole one. Tank was great. Um, yeah. Wendigo is just kind of there. Wendigo is just, you know, 
here here to pick up a check. <laughs> yeah. Here so he doesn't get fined. Uh, yeah, yeah. We respect the Wendigo. Uh and then gets beaten up and we fall into the frozen lake beneath us. Uh and we're like on the ground. Like I, I still have trouble understanding just what the like space of this area is. It's very strange because we're kind of in the lake, but we're not underwater. Um, it's, it's weird. I don't know. Ken, did you have this thing of like not really getting what the space that we're in is? I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, I mean, we're beneath the temple. Like, so the, the thing that we saw, like it's like sus- suspended on right. the frozen lake. It's like below that. Right. But there's no water beneath the ice is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. So it's just, that's just like a layer of ice that's up top. So it's not really like a lake lake. It's just a sheet of ice with ground beneath it, I guess. I don't know. More or less. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, we're, we're all hanging out here, you know, gathering ourselves, figuring stuff out. We, we get a good little chat with Yuna where she kind of explains what her plan was that she was going to, uh, try and convince Seymour to, to come clean and turn himself in. (laughs) Which is as Yuna's like, well, that, didn't work out well then uh and and Oren's like forget about it like we just need to forge ahead and oh there's a great like when Oren is basically like look we're going to do what we set out to do we're going to do the pilgrimage we're going to get the power of the faith and defy Yevon if we have to like he basically says we will break into the temples to get Yuna there to get the faith so she can kill Sid and I feel like this is such a cool moment because it's reinforced. Losers were killing God. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's, it's the first like time I feel a good wedge has been driven between the idea of what the faith is and what Yevon is. And I, f- mm. for me at least, like this is a really strong thematic point of separating church as the organization from faith as the concept Mm -hmm. and like driving a wedge there and saying like, no, there is a clear distinction. Like Yevon, as we have just clearly seen is broken from the inside and is going to actively impede us doing the thing that we know we need to do for the good of Spira. So we will get the faith. We will finish this pilgrimage and we will fight the church if we have to, which it sounds weird. Like the church doesn't want Yuna to finish her pilgrimage. And like Waka's over here just having his mind blown by the whole concept. And meanwhile, everyone else is like, F yeah, let's go. <laughs> like, let's go kill God. It's, mm-hmm. it's cool. And it, it made me obviously still love Oren a lot, but it's just, it's a cool thematic point and really starts to drive into where this story is going to go in terms of uh, tackling ideas of mm. not just religion, but specifically like, organized religion church that sort of thing and creating a difference between what a personal faith is and what a personal belief is versus what an organized like a uh, thing that you've been taught and told is and yeah, yeah. this formative game for me let's say mm, yep but it also like this isn't necessarily the point where they're all on board with that yet because there's still this level of doubt not necessarily what Arn is saying but just in, like that that is the lengths they have to go to yet because like everyone right. is still worried about what's happened and they want to go to Bevel to explain what happened. And right. I feel like, you know, Aaron is like the first person to like bring that idea up to everybody. But I think that they, you know, it, it's almost like a lot of them are putting them that in their back pocket. 
so they can, but they're gonna have to go like get this one little piece of doubt shredded uh, yeah. before they can do that. Yeah, um, so I, I it, did at least they do have to do that. Yeah, yeah, it, it mm-hmm. is at least like planting the seeds of like what this is ultimately going to be and mm-hmm. the reasons they're going to be doing these things and how they're going to accomplish them. Yeah, it's oh, it's a good scene. I just I like, and and this it gets even better as we move forward through this because we get. Uh, we start to kind of hear the the hymn coming from the temple, um, and they say it's it's Yevon's gift, and that the faith itself is singing it. And um, Titus even has a flashback to uh, hearing it in Xanarkand and humming it. And uh, this this is another thing I've always had trouble figuring out the timeline of. So Titus knows the hymn of the faith, and Jekt did too, obviously before he went to Spira. Mm. And I think yeah. they they presented as like some kind of like um, like fight song or something. Like every blitzer knows the song, yeah. just like every blitzer knows the little bow thing that they do. Yeah. I think it's like tied up in blitzball somehow. So I suppose it's just like a cultural landmark that got carried over, or yeah, 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 and got like attached to mm. religion instead of sport, which yeah. is also religion. So right. so someone sense. someone turned the hay song into a religious <laughs> hymn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh God! S- Take me out to the ball game. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, they're they're sitting down. It's like okay, it's time for church. Sweet Caroline. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> oh God! You oh. know that's exactly what's gonna happen, right? Mm. But in, in Sweet like Carolina religious text. Years, yeah. <laughs> Take me out to the ball game is gonna be a church song. I swear to God. Like or or you know we'll all be dead and aliens will come to Earth and they're they're like they it, this must be some religious thing because mm-hmm. about like fifty thousand people every week gathered in Yankee Stadium and sang this <laughs> yeah so yeah. like it it is it is religious level <laughs> oh <up>. sports is <laughs> religion we got there <laughs> um yeah so we have all these flashes and then suddenly we begin to realize oh hey. We're on sin. Are they on top of sin? Is that what the situation is? Sin is there. I again, like this is a hard. I think this is limitations of the PS2 at work. Yeah. But like this is a hard space to conceptualize. But basically, they realize that sin is underneath the lake, listening to the hymn of the faith, uh, because it like calms sin. Uh. And so then, you know, Sin is awake now and we start getting flashes of all these things and Titus just starts tripping out. Like, the the Sin gas gets all over him and he starts speaking really weird and he's just like, we'll find a way. We'll figure this out. I can see everything. And then um, it flashes and things happen and we wake up in an oasis. And that's that's where this section ends. That's where... Makalania ends. Um, so before before we get into the spoiler zone, uh, just kind of like final thoughts here. Uh, Ken, like, how do you feel about this like section of the game? Uh, I I like it as something where the game is starting to give form to like the concepts that it's been bringing up in terms of like Yuna suddenly understanding the world in a different way, Titus kind of like becoming more at peace with his own situation and maybe to like some extent at peace with who Jet was and what it all like or who he was when he knew him and who he was by the time that his life presumably came to an end and you know it, it's like a really strong turning point I think for 
all of these questions that has been bringing up, like, ASCON would have to finally start answering them in concrete ways. And, yeah, it's going to lead into some extremely uh, unpleasant answers next episode, for sure. Ash, what about you? How do you feel about all the Seymour stuff that we, we got through in this? It's very transitional, I think, like mm-hmm. what Kenneth said. Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is the part where we're taken from our one understanding of what this game is and what it's supposed to achieve to the other, you know, way that we think about this game. And this is like that, like right on the cusp of that turning point. And this becomes, you know, we have to go through all the places and undo all the temples and stuff to be like, oh, we got to go kill God now. Mm-hmm. Like, it, this, is, this is that part where it starts to change. And when the game, like, not open, it, it kind of opens up here, I think. Because I think, don't they go to the Calm Lands right after this? Or have we been to that uh, I, I think it already? Yeah, it's not yet. Um, I think it's kind yeah. of after, after Ravel. I think it's when everything kind of starts to open up more. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, we're right at that part, right? When it starts to yeah. begin to open up and it becomes the game that we all like love 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's also like important because like, it's the point where these characters start to realize that there's something, there are other things that they can accomplish in the midst of what mm-hmm. they're doing. Because they mm-hmm. spent all this time being like, okay, we're going to defeat Sin. Titus maybe not understanding all that entails at this point. Like, that is still the goal, primarily, beyond, like, getting Titus out of there, because he wants to go back to Xanarkin. But it's also, like, the point where, like, all these problems that we maybe are, like, maybe more privy to as the player, that, like, we're seeing as they're explaining this world to us. Like, now it's getting to the point where, like, the characters are starting to realize that we exist in a system that could maybe change by the end of this. And it kind of has to start with that, like, seed of doubt that they have now that like this isn't this perfect system that Waka has devoted his life to and that Yuna has like put herself like on the chopping block for um so I, I think it's just it is like like we've been saying like transitional but I also think it's like not not just in terms of uh you know th- these character arcs but more like the arc of the world of Spira I guess is it like it's mm-hmm. starting to like unravel all the things that we have like the system that we've seen neatly put into place for so long yeah and i think it's also the point where the party starts to feel more like um like some things within the party are starting to bubble up and i I don't mean that completely like they're starting to boil over like they did with waka and lulu but we're starting to see the interpersonal dynamics of this group evolve into something Mm -hmm. that isn't just guardians and summoner but into a group of people that all has different relationships with each other. And I think one of the ways that this really stuck out to me was uh, when you're under the frozen lake and you can kind of talk to everyone, you know, everybody's kind of going through it in different ways. You know, Waka is complaining about having just, having just killed a, uh, a maester of Yevon and uh, Oren's just kind of very like resolute. He's like, okay, well shit's fucked. So time for us to fuck stuff up too. And all that. But uh there's there's a really good dialogue you have. I didn't think it was going to be very good the way it started, but you you talk to Riku, and she starts going off on some weird tangent that was about like how much older Lulu is and and more mature. But she like there's like a weird reference to it being about like body and stuff like that. I was like, oh mm-hmm. great, we're like we're gonna be creepy about this now. But uh, Kimari nearby is like speaks up and is like. Uh, Riku says something like, I'll be like Lulu, just give me like five or six years, then you'll see. And then uh, Kimari says something like, I don't think Riku should be Lulu. 
think Riku should be Riku. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And like, and Riku like immediately like, at first takes offense to it because she's like, Oh, you think I can't be mature or whatever. And Kifari's like, no, I just, I like Riku. I'd like you to keep being Riku. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so nice. Like I, I I honestly got a little emotional hearing it because it's such an affirming thing to hear from someone when, you know, you're like, oh, I wish I could be like somebody else. I wish I could right. be this person. They're like, no, I, I like you a lot for who you are. And I want you to keep being a good version of you and not a version of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it's coming from Kamari, who's like, the has least, not like, talkative person. Yeah, right. he's not talkative. I, I, but I wouldn't say something, he's not caring either. Like he's still waters run deep. Yeah. And you can tell that like, there's a lot of just genuine, like he clearly feels that he's, you know, he doesn't need to tell Riku constantly that he likes who Riku is, but he speaks up at a moment when it's like, no, you, you should be you. And, uh, it, it hits a little bit. And that was the moment where I was like, Oh, Kamari and Riku. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a game about Titus and Yuna, but like, Mm. there's so many other interpersonal dynamics that are starting to come to Mm. the fore here, whether it is, you know, the confrontational stuff, you know, with basically Waka and everybody else. But uh, also just like, you know, the dynamics between like we talked about during the Thunder Plains episode, uh, Riku and Yuna, who have a really sweet moment in the Thunder Plains uh, where, you know, Riku is like taking her side is like, look, I'm with you. Like, I'll do whatever you want, but just make sure it's what you want. OK. And it's like, some good interpersonal dynamics here you know, coming off of games this year that are like, you know, tales of arise and stuff like that, that had very good interpersonal dynamics. I just, I like that a lot again here. And I'm also surprised they managed to achieve it with Riku because I think one of the hardest things to do in an RPG is make the last member that joins your party feel as much of a party member as the other characters do. You mean the Amaranth syndrome? Yeah. Or like for something like real recent, you play Persona 5 and like when Haru shows up, Mm. you're like, oh, cool. A, A new character like at like two thirds to three fourths of the way through the game. All right. Cool. Uh, it's it's so hard to make that character land in a way that feels memorable. And Riku, granted, does not show up that late into the game. I'd say like conservatively about halfway into the game. Mm-hmm. But she still quickly feels like a party member and not just like a scrappy do sort of addition to the team in a in mm-hmm. a way that I, I like a lot. Um so for those of us who have been playing along, who have been uh playing to this point and don't want to be spoiled. You can check out here. Just remember, we are patreon.com uh, slash Normandy FM. We are Normandy FM, a retrospective podcast. You can go support us there. I'm going to do the shout outs real quick here while I'm thinking of it. Uh, we are currently covering Final Fantasy X. Uh, we'll be doing it through the rest of the year and into the new year. Uh, we do, of course, have a Patreon that you can go and support, get into our backer Discord, hang out, chat there. If you back at the next level up, you will get the episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them. And at the highest level... Uh, you get shouted out every week. And this week, that list is just The Wedge of Destiny, Mercedes Lewis, and Mere Randomly. Thank you all so much for backing us and supporting us. That is that section. But if you want to hear the spoiler zone talk about a certain scene that happens later on in Makalania, we will now begin that here. Okay, let's talk about the kiss, y'all. <laughs> we got we to talk about the lake. Um, oh, man. What a scene. What a what a freaking cutscene. 
it doesn't get better than this. It hasn't before. Like, this is up there with spoiler alerts for Final Fantasy VII. I can't believe I have to say this, you know, so many years later. But, like, Eris dies. Mm-hmm. Like, this is that level of cutscene. And it's it's just so, it's so sensual. It's so sexy. It's so romantic. It's mm-hmm. so sweet. Mm-hmm. Like, in a Final Fantasy game, they have never done it since. And they had never done it before. And it's just the moment. Like, Mm. everything about that scene is just so beautiful. And, like, you know, you're a 14-year-old girl watching this. And you're like, oh, I get it now. Like, because up until this point, like, you know, you have your crushes on people. And you, I guess, know about sex. I'm trying to think (laughs) about my personal history here. And I'm trying to think about like what I thought about sex as a 14 year old girl and like yeah you have crushes but like the idea of like having a boy creature like touch you is like physically (laughs) repulsive because you know most of your crushes up until this point are like maybe one real flesh human and then fictional boys like I've had crushes on like tuxedo mask and right right Mega Man I can't explain. Wait, Mega Man? Uh, does any does anybody remember the Mega Man cartoons that used to be? Yeah, he's, he's a fighting robot. Mega Man. Yeah. I had a crush on that guy. Oh, so, no. you know, make him that what you will or whatever. But, like, sex? Ew. That's disgusting. With, like, <laughs> but, like, watching that scene, it's like, oh, I get it now. Mm. I want that, too. <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, this is, like... A, a good year before I discover like fan fiction and Yu Yu Hakusho fan fiction and like you know all that shit and then this, then we take the fuck off but like this is the moment where I'm like oh sex maybe not be gross if it's like this I mean obviously sex is nothing like this but like even as a 14 year old girl like watching this like heavily um, like nuanced scene where they're like kissing and they're swirling around each other mm-hmm. and they fall down but nobody takes their clothes off or anything like you um, like even as like pg 13 as this is like mm-hmm. even i understood like oh yeah they totally fucked and I'm like i want that <laughs> like it is such a beautiful like thing like and i've never forgotten it all these years later mm-hmm. okay whoo glad i got that out of me <laughs> yeah, like i for, for me this, this seems like not a sexual awakening because like but it it was at the that point in my life, like, I was, I mean, what, how old was I, 20 years ago? Like, nine? Okay, so, like, I, it was at least, like, an awakening in terms of, like, what romance looked like in fiction, and, like, because, like, you know, by that point, I, like, I fucking watched cartoons and, you know, Disney movies, and that had not really portrayed, like, the nuance of how, like, something romantic could be sad and could be tragic and mm. emotionally complicated and... I think in terms of that, it, like, it kind of opened my eye into like, what romance could look like in stories. And that was something that, like, I, I think that era of, like, I, I, around the same, same time I was playing, like, the first Kingdom Hearts, which, like, I was kind of, like, getting in more into, like, the Japanese style of storytelling that came from JRPGs and mm-hmm. anime that wasn't Pokemon. And, like, how, like, the certain level of, like, emotional, like, how heightened the emotions are of, like, that sort of presentation was and I think like that's something about the scene that really stuck out to me at the time was that like it moved me in a way that a lot of fiction hadn't by that point and so like, it wasn't necessarily a sexual awakening but it was it certainly awakened something in me and kind of like elevated what I wanted out of 
or, or it, it made me want more like romance in the stories that I consumed at a younger age, um, in a way that has still stuck with me to this day, and which is kind of like what has made the Tidus and Yuna relationship like one of my favorites in games. Like it just mm-hmm. like understanding that dynamic and like it's not always happily ever after. It can be the thing that's wound up in like really complicated emotions, and sometimes those complicated emotions just they surface in a kiss, and you know. And so for that, like, it's memorable, like, both as, like, a moment in the game, but, like, also as a moment in me understanding that romance is tragedy in a mm. lot of cases. Mm. And, yeah, and it still sticks up, sticks to me for that reason to this day. Yeah, I guess I, I never really thought of it as a bittersweet kind of thing, but it kind of is because, like, this is... I guess this is when they both, like, confront each other about what Yuna's fate ultimately is at the end of this pilgrimage thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I... They start to real, or at least Titus starts to realize, like, oh, all these things you've been doing, this is, to you, the last time that Mm -hmm. you'll ever see these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and, and then they they come to this realization. It's like, oh, well, well, since I'm gonna die, (laughs) might as well, you know? And that's what, you know, because she's, there's all these things that she wants to do, but she won't get to do. And this, Mm -hmm. but hope, thankfully, we got to, you know, she didn't, she got to fuck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. A guy that she liked and not just like a guy who was in close proximity just Uh, because, but like someone she genuinely had feelings for. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is like rare for like teenage girls. It's always like someone who's like, okay, you'll do. You're right. here, whatever. <laughs> it's not like someone like, oh god, I love this person. Yeah, and it, it's like, it's like tied into all these complicated things because like mm-hmm. he also is like this sort of like symbol to her that things might not have to be this way. Like everything, every time she has these conversations with him, she's getting that like it's like the Carol and the stick of like maybe things can be different. Maybe this does not have to be my fate. Even though this is what I've told myself for however many years, this is what I'm going to do. This is the way that my life is going to be. And now I have this person who has been, since he got here, he has been this person that has kind of communicated to me that not everything is as I've been told and that there are other possibilities here. And so, like, you know, I mean, it's it's what makes their relationship, like, you know, this perfect, like, romantic, like, juxtaposition between who they are when they start and who they are when the game is over. And, um... You know, it's, just, it's very complicated. Like it's very, very good. And and it's like, for me at least, it was also about a lot of what y'all have said already, but also just two people like knowing each other and being willing to like rely on each other, and I mean being weak to each other in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's it's like I was also watching Evangelion at this point in my life, which if you can if you know my age and count that two decades you'll understand why i say uh i watched evangelion at the wrong point in my (laughs) life (laughs) uh (laughs) what some would say is an impressionable age uh but it was that idea of like the hedgehog dilemma and like being close also makes you open to being hurt more Mm -hmm. and like seeing these characters finally overcome so much of their internal issues and being willing to be open and honest in that moment was a lot and then also like it's it's gorgeously animated it's i mean it's mm-hmm. still stunning by today's standards and yeah it's i i mean it is the you know in, in some ways it is the oh they finally kissed yeah like they they finally got together it happened like it is that level but it's also just as we talked about before it's seeing characters in an rpg 
have that sort of connection and something that I think we talked about a lot during the Mass Effect season and the Dragon Age seasons and stuff was the idea of romance kind of being this quest line with an end goal and instead you end up here with it's just part of their story. It's how these characters mm. keep developing and they keep developing after this too. They mm. continue to be characters that develop after this. They're not defined by solely by the romance, but it is an important part of who they are. And it's an important part of how they grow into the people they will become by the end of this game and moving into future final fantasy 10 works. And I think that's, that's cool. It's cool to see because it's, we don't see it in a lot of other RPGs. I don't think a lot of RPGs, this might be a hot take. I don't think a lot of RPGs in general have handled romance. Well, Mm. like just the idea of romance is something other than, you know, what we have seen as, you know, here's this thing. You'll get to romance a character at the end and you clear their quest line and they might show up in your ending. But like, this is a romance. So the fire emblem. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, I love fire emblem, but yes, (laughs) yes um i have always wanted a fire emblem that made romance feel like it would carry throughout the game in more meaningful ways and not either turn it into um you know you eventually s rank them and you get the cutscene and and good job you've done that or like again saying this i love the fire emblem series some of my favorite games but in awakening and fates where it becomes this whole like oh i can romance people to make perfect children out of them exactly i was just thinking like um genetic breeding program yeah or then that's exactly what i was thinking again three houses my number one game of that year uh oh you're not my student anymore so this isn't weird anymore (laughs) like uh i would love to see more games tackle it in the way, again, a game I've already mentioned here on the podcast is Tales of Arise, I think, actually managed to get close to this again and create romance that felt like it developed over the course of a game and felt natural and felt like it was those two characters growing and becoming their own character while also still having a meaningful relationship between the two. So maybe that is possible. Maybe it can still be done. But uh, it's it really, just the way it hit, I mean, two decades ago and has so few games that can stack up to it. Like it does. It's, it's something else. So also, and the, the soundtrack. Yes. The music oh that plays, yeah. The song that plays when that happens. Oh is yeah. Fucking beautiful. Like Suteki Dane, like you could make a list of like the top five, like most wedding worthy final mm. fantasy songs <laughs> and Suteki Dane would be in that list. Yeah. Easy all day. Um, the promise is the other dearly beloved from final or kingdom hearts is another one, mm-hmm. but that's three. I don't have the other two, but those are the top three right now. Just, you know, <laughs> I know you didn't care, but I just had that ready. <laughs> it's just Put a, a lot of thought into this. Song. Yes, I have. Um, it's just a beautiful <laughs> fucking perfect song. Yes. Everything about this scene is just structured perfectly in a way that just, no other Final Fantasy has just managed to capture. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the S-plus standard. Like, it just... I can't think of a singular scene since then. Maybe there are some moments in 14. Not romantic, but just, like, <gasps> moments. Mm. But, like, in any of the games since, nothing has come close. Mm. The way that it's... The, the, the emotion that it represents, graphically stunning, yep. musically stunning. It just... You don't get better than that. It just that is just what it is. Yeah. I yeah. I think that it's it's 
a standard that the series has been trying to get back to for a while. Mm. Um, it's like, I, I think the one thing that came to mind when you're talking about like, you know, what in the series is like come close to the level of like cutscene that final fantasy 10 has the, the first thing that jumped to mind was uh, the end of 15 when you're walking into the city as like the old version yes. of the party. That was like yes. that part of that game is maybe the best part of the game. And Yes. retroactively like justifies a lot of yes. stuff that they went through to get there <laughs> yes. because the second that happens you're just like oh fuck this hits and then made me mad that the rest of the game did not hit in that way yes. <laughs> but um it's yeah it's this is just a goddamn good video game like every time i go back and we do you know one of these podcasts or i'm playing it for for the podcast or something i'm just sitting there and every time I do a list of my favorite games of all time, uh, Final Fantasy X is always on that list, usually always in the top five. And mm-hmm. uh, every time I've played it now, I just feel like I'm continually justifying that slot and, and earning its place while also making me continuously mad at, at Kenneth Shepard for having the foresight to get a Xanark and Abe's <laughs> tattoo <laughs> because I've been jealous of that tattoo for so long. It's a good tattoo. And it's like, I, if I remember right, it's in the exact spot that I wanted to get it to. It's on, it's on, it's on one of your, yeah. No, it's, yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say it's your left forearm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is how well we know each other. <laughs> this, uh, yeah, I was mad because I had been thinking about getting that for a while, and then, and then Ken had it, and I was like, oh, damn. Then the fucking short 5'3 motherfucker with an infamous beanie walks up to you at an airport, and you're like, oh, he's got it. Now yeah. I can't get it. <laughs> yeah, shows up in, in Vegas so we can go cover the PlayStation experience. That was how Ken and I met. <laughs> Aww. Um, yeah, so now I just got to settle for probably getting like the Yorha symbol there instead, which is still a pretty good tattoo, but... Uh, I keep no. If you want a cool tattoo, get one of the symbols for the summons in Final Fantasy XII. Those would make really good tattoos. Ooh. I, I would think they're the... very intricate and they would take forever, but they'd be really good. I've never the played Le- Final the Fantasy XII. Problem from thirteen. Yeah. This, uh, uh, that carries. That's kind of weighty, don't you think? Uh, like, oh, I'm gonna turn into a monster if I don't achieve my goal. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a constant reminder of the you need to be getting shit done at all times. I was going to say, like, does that mean that Ken's tattoo is like, oh, well, I'm going to be a terrible father one day. <laughs> the the solution is to not become a father at all. There we go. Like Titus. There you go. <laughs> on that note, thank you again, Ash, for, for coming on and chatting all things Seymour and water schmangin and everything <laughs> here. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, for the folks at home, please shout out whatever stuff you want to shout out. Yeah, you have a new job since oh. you were last year. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I still do the same thing just for new people. Uh, I write about video games for The Verge, a uh, Vox Media property, so Ooh. you can find me there. Um, you can still find me on Twitter at Astra A-D-A-S-H-T-R-A. And, yeah, um, say hi. <laughs> just one, one more quick note. The testament to that scene is that it makes having sex in water seem appealing when in reality it is very much not. not. Water is not a lubricant, everyone. It doesn't work that way. Water sex scenes are never sexy. It's all manufactured, but Final Fantasy X makes it look good. It's it's sphere water. It's different, all right? It, it works and that's different. the real Final Fantasy. 
<laughs> oh my god oh it is always a joy having you on the show <laughs> oh for ash for ken for myself we will see you next time when we head off to beaconel island here on normandy at that point.